You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. I'm Avery Smith, and I'm here to invite you to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Whatever your own relationship to gender and spirituality may be, you will find yourself enriched by the stories shared by my guests, who so far have ranged in religion from Christian and pagan to Jewish, Sikh, atheist, and beyond, and have hailed from the U.S., Chile, Poland, Australia, and more. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts, or read along with episode transcripts by visiting blessedarethebinarybreakers.com. See you there. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. In this episode of Sacred Tension, I speak with Satanist, criminal, defense attorney, and old Ben Kenobi of Satanism, Studahan. We discuss the political activism of the Satanic Temple free speech, and why the Satanic Temple should be seen first and foremost as a religion and not a political activist group. But before we get to that, just a few pieces of housekeeping. First, if you enjoy my work and want to support it, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for a few dollars a month, you get extra content and you support the long life of my work. You ensure that I can continue to bring you interesting content every single week on my blog and podcast. Also, on a personal note, I am incredibly excited to announce that I am now an ordained minister of Satan within the Satanic Temple. This is a really big deal to me. It's been a long time coming. I have been so excited about this and finally completing the ordination program and Being able to put MS after my name, meaning Minister of Satan, it's a huge accomplishment. I just wanted to take a moment to announce that I'm also incredibly excited about more Satanists joining the program, and I'm really, really excited about the future of the Satanic Temple and the future of the ordination program. Finally, if you want to join the discussion about my work, about this episode, or any of my blog posts or previous shows, please consider joining my Discord server. There is new conversation going on there every single day. It is an incredibly cool group of people, and you are welcome to join them. There is a link in the show notes. I also love hearing back from my audience via email or in comments on my website. So please go to stephenbradfordlong.com, and I would love to hear back from you. All right. Well, with all of that finally out of the way, I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with Stu DeHaan. Stu DeHaan, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. So, uh, let hold on. I think the cat is wanting into the office. Of course, right just the moment that I start recording. Give me just a second. I have six cats. So, oh, 
you're one of those. You're, you're the guy with all the cats. I'm the guy with all the cats. So I, I like to think of myself as like the the crazy cat lady of Satanism. I am I'm like the the Appalachian mountain swamp witch of Satanism who like lives up here in my little cabin on the mountain surrounded by cats that that's like, how that's how i like to see myself i like that you have that i have one too i like to think of myself as like the old ben kenobi of of satanism you are definitely the old ben kenobi of satanism i'm just out in the desert like <laughs> waiting for someone to call upon me to do something <laughs> cool so uh for people who aren't familiar with who you are tell us some about who you are and what you do Oh, well, uh, I am a career criminal defense attorney. Uh, I actually came here from the Netherlands when I was 18, military family, uh, very diverse religious background between both of my parents. Uh, and I made a career out of doing pr private criminal defense. I now do some public criminal defense. And I got involved with the Satanic Temple around 2015. That's when I joined. I was kind of, It was on my radar, but I joined in about 2015. So what? Um, sorry, sorry. Go on. Oh no, I, I was just—I uh, I could go through my my TST resume here. I was at the co-founder of the Arizona chapter. I was on national council before it was international council for several years. Uh, I then became uh, the first attorney for TST in-house. Basically, uh, started the TST legal team, which has now been passed on to Matthew Kaziah for the most part. And then I was involved with the ordination program. Yeah. So that's you, kind of been my arc. You gave some amazing lectures. Uh, for the ordination program, and I'm super excited about them because they're super good. And so anyone who ends up taking the ordination program will get to sit under your tutelage. Cool. Um, well, so thank you for that. I really, I really enjoyed doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was really good. So for people who don't know, could you tell us what a defense attorney, criminal defense attorney, is? Like, what do you do? What is your job? So it's, a, it's kind of unique to other kinds of law because criminal law uh, is separate from civil law and civil law pretty much encompasses the rest of law. Um, so what we deal with is we fight against the government. The government. And, by, and by we, you mean criminal defense lawyers. Yeah, criminal defense lawyers in general. So the plaintiff is always going to be the prosecuting agency, which is different than most kind of laws, most kind of law practice, I mean. So, you know, if you work for the state of Arizona, or if you're in that jurisdiction, the, the state of Arizona is the plaintiff. If it's a federal system, the federal government. So it's the United States of America versus your client, and you represent the, the little guy accused of, of, of various crimes. Um, mm. So I've done it at every level. I, I've done from dog leashes to homicide and everything in between. Oh, uh, wow. About 15 yeah. years in practicing that. Yeah, so you have worked with all kinds of people, and you are fulfilling kind of the this constitutional role of um, I forget what the exact wording is, but like access to an attorney and a fair trial, right? For ev even for people who might end up being criminals, they still have the right to that, and you fill that role. We enforce, you know, due process. We make sure that the the powerful, you know, there's a lot of power that the government has, the police and, and government agencies, and we do our best to protect the very unpopular, often very unpopular defendants yeah. uh, from essentially uh, witch hunts, I mean, is the best way I could put it, is mm. I defend some very unpopular people who have often done very terrible things. But in order for justice to be served, the idea is that somebody gets to tell or, you know, has the duty to tell their side of the story. Yeah. Um, 
would ensure that if they do get sentenced harshly, um, their rights were safeguarded. So that's my duty, and that's been my pretty much my my career. Yeah. So in a way, you're kind of like the legal manifestation of the archetype of Satan, where it's like you're you're the voice for the outsider, literally, <laughs> in the legal system. Yes. It's my job. It's my passion. And uh, it's me, you know, taking on the satanic law, so to speak, was kind of conceptually par for the course for me. Taking on the the, the underdog, the one with an upheld battle, the, the hated, the despised, and the one that, you know, that's the kind of rights that need the most protected. Uh, same with freedom of religion or speech. Absolutely. Nobody that's popular, no one that's popular has to fight for their rights. Yeah, no, I'm I'm a big free speech guy. It probably annoys a lot of people, but, you know, free speech is like one of my hills. I will fucking die on that hill. I just did an interview, actually, with Adam Goldstein from the organization FIRE, which you may or may not have heard of. It's it's like one of the biggest free speech legal organizations about uh, free speech within um, within the academic world. And it, it's super cool. So for people who want to know more about my views on free speech, they can listen to that. They can also listen to my interview with Lucian Greaves about free speech. What's that like for you? What is it? What's it like emotionally and socially defending people who are often reviled by society? Um, well, it's <laughs> everyone hates a defense attorney until they need one. You know, it's this <laughs> and that can be said for for cops and everything and a lot of other things. Right. So, uh, you know, I, from one side, I get the, I can't believe, how do you, you get the questions such as, you know, how do you put those people, those people back on the street or, you know, mm -hmm. from the other side, they think, you know, fighting cops is a noble cause. So it just depends on the person. But I, I think generally people who understand justice in a very basic concept, understand why I do what I do. Mm -hmm. But there is a lot of that, like, how do you, how do you defend those people? How do you... Mm -hmm. You know, that, that kind of thing. So, uh, but the general disdain for defense attorneys, you'll see always comes up when there's a controversial trial. OJ, um, yeah. the current trial um, related to the George Floyd murder in, in Minnesota, alleged murder at this point, we'll see how that pans out. But, um, but yeah, you'll see how defense attorneys get real unpopular uh, during the controversies, depending on who the defendant is, of course. Hmm. So there's, there is kind of this flippant view of, of due process and justice. You'll often see when, you know, whenever someone hated by one side or the other uh, is trying to tell their side, they often say, you know, this person doesn't have rights. This person doesn't deserve a fair trial. You know, Satan doesn't have rights. If you've even seen that sign. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, it's I think I think the natural human compulsion is to dehumanize and say this person's scum. They don't deserve a fair trial. And you see that in every context, every which way. And I, I, it's just, you know, to me, that's a witch hunt. You dehumanize and you destroy. Uh, they don't deserve. They're not even human. They don't even deserve a fair trial or rights. And I see that in every context daily, you know, whether it's a po police officer on trial or a poor person on trial or a person of color on trial. Doesn't, somebody is saying they're they're subhuman. Yeah, you know, it's, and that's it's, try to avoid with fair trials. Yeah, you, I, you know, I, I really feel like a lot of these kind of foundational liberal principles of, of things like due process and free speech, freedom of religion. A lot of these things are are so counterintuitive to the human psyche, and so hard for us, and and hard for me. Like they they are, it takes practice to think in this way. It takes practice to think in a 
in this way that allows for for greater stability and pluralism and acceptance and tolerance, right? And I, I'm just endlessly fascinated by like the tension between human nature and these really important principles that like keep society running and how hard it is for us to maintain them. I would say that that's a symptom of when, when there's a large enough people in a pool, whether that pool is your precinct or your state or your country or whatever, or your religion or whatever it is, mm. um, the, the bigger it becomes, the more the people inside of that group become mere abstractions, mm. a, a name on a screen, a thumbnail of something, and they become those people. And I think that those people concept has been around, you know, they say when a group gets above, they say when a group gets above 150 people, there's usually some kind of schism, yes. uh, whether it's a religious group or anything else. And I think what happens in a society this large in this interconnected not now world with the internet, there is a lot of people that fall into the category of those people. Mm. And I think that's universal. And you see it, especially when you start this career, you see it in, in when you um, have a situation where you read a, a police report. And you're like, this guy sounds like a monster. Hmm. And then you go down to the jailhouse and you meet this guy and it's a scared young man that was yeah. dealt a hand. And all of a sudden it just shatters what you read in the newspaper about your client before you had met him, you know? And you have this kind of happen over and over and over again. And then you realize people are just people. There aren't those people. It's just what side were you on in that moment when this thing occurred? Were you a cop doing your job? Were you a citizen reading a newspaper? And this is the abstraction of, of other human beings that creates our biases is kind of the way I look at it. Hmm. How much do you feel like social media plays into into th this whole dynamic? Like, I, I feel like we have this natural tendency of of gooding or batting, of demonizing or angelicalizing, I guess would be the word. You know, we, we already have that tendency like that's hard baked into human nature. But I. I really feel like social media has made it much worse for everyone. I mean, no one, no one is immune, right? Left, right, left, right, center, apolitical. It doesn't matter. These are universal human glitches. And I feel like social media just tends to amplify it for a lot of reasons that I've covered on my blog, which I won't get into here. But but do you think that's the case? How do you think that plays out? Absolutely, because uh, you know that, that's the ultimate of reductionism and absolutism. So you see mm. one statement that a person makes in the same size font as everyone else's with the same size thumbnail, and you take what they said and you reduce it to its most base form, and then you judge that person accordingly as that's their entire person based on one sentence you disagree with. You have now reduced someone to an image that you have of them. And we're doing this back and forth and back and forth. And you can see best friends unfriending each other on Facebook over minor minutia. Yeah. Uh, the narcissism of small differences. I see this especially in my uh, with a lot of my comrades in lefty spaces where it's like, OK, you know, we're we're all ultimately on the same page. But it's like seizing the means of production. You have like slight differences of, of <laughs> you have slight disagreements over that it is like fucking all-out war <laughs> but, but yeah, but you mean, you, obviously this is natural and this is natural in that uh in, in human circles because when was there one party you know there's the communist party usa there's the uh socialist workers party there's uh -huh. the revolutionary communist party that's just in current state america you know you had the, the bolsheviks you had the trotskyites you could go on and on and on and that and you know the protestants the episcopalians i don't even know what the difference is to be honest with you you know like <laughs> and from the outside looking in it's you know no one knows the difference between 
the Church of Satan or the Satanic Temple, unless they, you know, sit down and talk to someone or, or read about it or all these things that take time and effort that no one's going to put in because we're getting this from every direction yeah. all the time, 24-7 news cycles. So, yeah, it, it, it does divide us. It even divides friends, you know, brother against brother situations. Yeah. So, so yeah, I do think that it has a lot to do with social media. Yeah. Yeah, I've for people who are curious, I've written a, a fuck ton about this um, and, and like the corrosive effects of social media and and all of that stuff. Uh, maybe I'll put some links in the show notes for people who are interested. OK, so because I'm I'm just curious. So this is going very far afield from the topic that we were intending. We'll get there eventually. But uh, you mentioned the the trial of um, George Floyd and. Mm-hmm. What's what's your uh, just because you are involved in the criminal justice system? What's what is your take on that situation? This is this is the trickiest question. Um, that should not have happened. I I, I personally think it was. Oh, it, it, was, it was an abomination. It, it was, was it was a it was it was a homicide. It was. Um, I totally agree with you. Okay, so regarding the we call it the George Floyd trial. I mean that's the name that that's in everyone's mind, but it's, it, Derek Chauvin. Uh, we all we all watched what happened, and you know, uh, in my opinion, that clearly was a homicide and an extreme abuse of police force and things like that. Of now, course. one thing I've seen that's disturbing, a disturbing trend, is I see people posting this one specific meme that says something to the effect of, "We know that the United States is a failed state because there's a trial currently going on for a homicide we all watched." And to me, that is that is a disturbing statement because it's saying giving the accused a fair trial means we're a failed state. And it, it is so unbelievably backwards to me. Hmm. I mean, the fact that this man has a fair trial is one of the last free things in this country, in my opinion, that that due process exists for us all. And as a criminal defense attorney, I kind of winced when I see the, these kind of statements hmm. where it's like, yeah, something happened and it needs to be sorted out in a court of law. You know, does that fit the, the definition of what a homicide is or the various other counts? And I think that is the beauty of the system that we that we have the rights universally uh, to be able to sit tr- and, and, and have a trial. So, you know, I think the process going through this process is exactly what should happen. Um, I'm not on that jury. I'm not watching this 24 seven feed. So I won't give more of an opinion than that. But from from what I've seen and heard. Uh, that was a homicide. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, and I'm and I'm I'm really disturbed by a lot of I a lot of people I would call them you know intellectual dark webbers, who are who are like well we we don't really know what happened it, uh, do we know it was a homicide or not and I'm like you know maybe they come by that opinion honestly but to me it it's pretty it's pretty obvious and it becomes dis to me it it's kind of dishonest in my mind for for people to see all the evidence that we have (laughs) and say that it wasn't a homicide i don't know what your take on that is but a lot of it is uh we live in a very fearful society i think americans are very scared people yeah i agree Uh, with that for sure one reason one reason for that is of the disinformation campaigns you know the sky is falling at every minute it doesn't matter which political spectrum is coming from The, the sky is falling right now all the time 24 7 combine that with we're very separated into nuclear families uh very separated in our offices Mm. really kind of segmented away from each other um we're scared of anything that's different and i think we have this weird uniform worship 
in America, whether it's police or military, we worship men and you know, men in a uniform and we need to follow their orders and they, they, you know, they protect us and without them, everything would fall apart. So I think we give them more deference. Than we could. Okay. Pause. They are really fucking hot though. <laughs> well, the problem is what's inside the uniform sometimes. Fair, fair. <laughs> so do you have faith that that, do you have faith that the system is fair enough, though, to grant a fair trial? Um, okay. <laughs> That's a very tricky question. Um, okay. It, it could be a loaded question, but I will say this. I've been doing this for a very long time. Mm. I have seen good and bad everything, good and bad. I've seen good and bad cops, lawyers, prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, every, defendants, everything in between. There is no great way to do this. And I think the flaws in the criminal justice system are really being exposed right now, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's like if someone once asked me recently, do you, you believe or agree with the death penalty? And I said, look, a government that doesn't have the sense to legalize marijuana should not hold the keys to who lives or dies. You know, it, it just is that kind of thing. It's like, it, it's like we get things so wrong so often because we're fallible people that all we can do is try to course correct the best we can. In any time in history you're in, something really fucked up is going in the criminal justice system. And you might not even know what it is. Mm. You might be barking up the wrong tree on that. So it is very complicated. I just think that there is a system in place that is more fair than a lot of other places. If if uh, oftentimes the stuff goes wrong, it's not the fault of the justice system. It's either the legislature and the way they've written laws or it's a biased public. And mm. those two things cannot be controlled by the, by the, the judiciary. Mm. Those things are independent of it so it is a very complicated question that's really really fascinating yeah and you know it it reminds me of a quote by alexander solzhenitsyn that i just keep coming back to again and again and again where he says the line dividing good dividing between good and evil it doesn't run between states it doesn't run between groups of people it doesn't run between organizations it runs through every single human heart and it vacillates with time and and he says you know with Within the best person, there is there is you know within the most evil person, there is a small bridgehead of good, and vice versa, and and it vacillates with time, and and so we I I do sometimes think, and I have this bias, right? Like I I have this tendency to to black and white institutions, I or or to to cast whole institutions in in one hundred percent good, one hundred percent bad, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that that's something that I become aware of in myself. When the reality is the the line dividing good and evil, it doesn't run between institutions. It runs through every human heart. But and I think I think the more separate you are from an institution, the easier it is to do that because your information is limited. So you can make that quick mm. judgment. But the closer you get to a system, the more you see there's positives and negatives everywhere. Yeah. And sometimes if you were to ask me the question of how to solve it, my answer would be, I have no fucking idea. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I know what things I think would make it better, but if you ask 10 other criminal defense attorneys, they might have 10 different answers. Hmm. And that's why, you know, with, sat with Satanism, uh, it's the same kind of thing where I get asked, you know, what's the position of the satanic temple on something? And I'm like, ask 10 of us, you'll get 10 different answers. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. I, you know, I can't answer that. Cool. All right. Well, so let's let's pivot some here to the legal work that you do for TST. So there's this phrase that's been floating around, and it is Lucian's Law. What is Lucian's Law? Well, uh, so 
When I wanted to talk about Lucian's Law, the reason I, I I'll, I'll start here. <laughs> the reason I wanted to talk about it and thought it was important was that um, John Oliver recently did a thing on, on Tucker Carlson and what a scumbag Tucker Carlson is. And I went back before I watched it to look at Tucker's interviews with Lucian Greaves. And he said a couple things that were striking to me. Let's, well, let's pause real fast. Lucian here. Greaves, uh, for people who are new to the show, co-founder of the Satanic Temple. Yes. yes Carry sorry. on. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure what you're, uh, who's watching, so maybe I should explain some of these things a little more. No, it's it's all good. We we get new we get new people with every episode, so I I try to define terms each time. Yep. So Lucian Greaves, the founder of the Satanic Temple, went on Tucker Carlson twice in two weeks, and I think my my theory is uh, Lucian kind of owned him the first time. Yep. And I think he wanted to get him back for revenge, and he was a little <laughs> nasty to him the second time. And in watching this. <laughs> And uh, of course, Lucian owned him again. But anyway, uh, the thing that was striking to me was, you know, this whole concept that we're out there, the satanic temple is just out there to bother people. That word, that that phrase kept coming. You're just trying to bother people. <laughs> and I started thinking about it. And I was thinking about the concept of Lucian's law and how I think it's time for a little refresher for everybody. And for those that are new or Satan curious, maybe uh, this concept is something that would be helpful to kind of define the parameters of what what we fight and how we fight it. So that being said, Lucian's Law is the reason I got involved in the Satanic Temple in the first place. This was a phrase uh, that was coined by a guy I don't know named David Williamson. He was the head of the local chapter of the Central Florida Free Thought community. The way this came up was back in, let's see, I think it was May of 2015, Andrew Seidel wrote a guest post on Patheos. Andrew Seidel is one of the head attorneys for the Freedom from Religion Foundation. So he's a kind of big time uh, constitutional lawyer. He's like the new generation. He's around my age. And he writes this, this guest post talking about this new term called Lucian's Law. What happened was there were Florida in, in a school, public school in Florida, Bibles were being passed out. And a number of organizations try to stop this thing. Hey, this is a violation of the Establishment Clause. And what that means is the government cannot endorse one religion over another. So if you're handing out Bibles, not as a educational thing, but as a this is what you should believe thing, clearly that seems like Christianity is being endorsed by a public school. Well, the Freedom from Religion Foundation wrote letters, the Free Thought Organization wrote letters, uh, and nothing was getting them to take these Bibles down. So in comes Lucian Greaves, who at the time was was pretty, you know, the Satanic Temple was very new. And the way that this was countered was, okay, fine, keep your Bibles in school. But here is a coloring book that is the, the big book of uh, Satanic children's <laughs> activities. That is when all hell broke loose. And then they decided to take out the Bibles from the public schools because they said, look, if you don't let us have our Satanic coloring books, we're going to sue you uh, because then you're endorsing your religion over ours. And like that, yeah. boom, they called it, they also, other than Lucian's Law, they, they called it the nuclear option for separation of church and state. Hmm. Now, from an outside perspective, you can see how this might look look like mere trolling if you don't know kind of the big cult, you know, contextual background here. So the way Andrew Seidel uh, described this, and I, I'm, I'm gonna read it uh, verbatim here. The principle is that the government will either close open forums when the Satanic Temple asks to speak, or censor the satanic temple, thereby opening itself up to legal liability. That's the very basic, mm. very important aspect of Lucian's law. So what you'll see is people will continually say, oh, the satanic temple is just trying to get rid of religion in the public sphere. 
Now there's a great irony to this because what happens is that when we ask to do something, all we're asking is for inclusion, the same exact thing that they're doing. We will never go into a forum where the religion doesn't already exist. So you're not going to see us p- passing out satanic literature in a school that doesn't already have Christian literature. Hmm. So we're just saying you've opened up the forum, you've opened the door. We're going to walk through that same door because you have the same rights. If they shut that forum down, that's their choice, not ours. Hmm. They did that. Yes. They closed down the public forum on you. We didn't do that, nor did we ask. So you know, you don't get to say, I'll turn this bus around and then say, look what you made me do. You know, we didn't make you do anything. You chose that. And what it does, first of all, is it it exposes two different things. It exposes the fact that religious liberty is basically Christian supremacy. Religious liberty laws are exclusively made for Christian. Mm-hmm. What it also does secondarily, and I think more importantly, is it will cause people who make these rules to think, who else am I opening the door for? If there's a group I don't like, maybe we should just not have this in the government, which was, I think, you know, the founder's intention. If you ask Andrew Seidel, he's got books on this. So, <laughs> um, you know, that that's our intention is to be included. My personal idea of this is that secularism is a fantasy. The concept of government not being led by religion is a complete and utter fantasy. It's the way it should be. It's a normative value. But in reality, there are rules all over the place that open up the public forums to religion. And I'm not asking to take those down. I'm just saying, if you're going to do this, you've got to do it equally and we will not be disenfranchised. We will not be taken out because you decided which religions are acceptable for religious liberty. This is such a basic concept, but it seems woefully misunderstood by the public, by politicians, to, to the point where I find it to be dangerous. Mm. You know, you're creating a bigoted system where religious liberty means someone's losing their rights. That's what religious liberty means is we're giving you have the right to discriminate. That's your religious liberty. That's what the courts have done. And we're saying, no, this is not acceptable. So that's the general the general idea there. Yeah. So and and what I hear from this and, and this is kind of the analysis that Joseph Laycock laid out in his book, Speak of the Devil, which is when a minority religion walks through the doors that the theocrats opened. Right. And that that the theocrats opened in the name of religious freedom and then the ensuing clusterfuck that inevitably happens (laughs) when a minority religion walks through those doors that were open in the name of religious freedom and and the ensuing panic attack (laughs) that takes place. The term Um, of art that we will now use is the brouhaha, because that's what the federal judge called it in in the Scottsdale case. When when 5,000 emails came in or 50,000, it was some huge amount of emails came in and he called it the brouhaha, which I would love to use as our term for this. So so when the brouhaha happens and, and, you know, uh, members of the dominant religion lose their fucking minds over a minority religion taking advantage of the privileges that and and walking through the door that they opened. That suggests to me that they never believed in religious freedom to begin with. That's exactly right. And they demonstrated openly the you know the the I think Joe Laycock in his book named a chapter "Equality Gone Too Far," yes. which was a statement by one of the city council members saying allowing the Satanists to have religious liberty is equality gone too far. And the fact that she would say this to the constituency shows that it's not only it's not only present, they're flippant about it. I mean, this is a, this is something that was said in a public record. They, they, they don't even care. They yeah. don't even care. that They're like, yeah, we, we don't like this minority religion, so we're not going to have them. Like the bigotry is in the open and, and nobody really does anything about this but us. Um, as far as this type of suit, you know, a lot of the other secular organizations, they ask for the removal 
of the things. We don't, we ask for the inclusion, but we're not going to be discriminated against. So if they pull the plug on the public forum, like I said, that wasn't our doing. Hmm. So, so you mentioned secular groups and, and the legal battles that they've engaged in. My impression is that in the fight against theocracy, and maybe I'm biased and misguided here because I'm a, a member of the Satanic Temple, but my impression is that the Satanic Temple has gotten a, a level of success and publicity from their legal battles that has not been necessarily the case with um, purely secular organizations fighting the same battle. A, do you think that's the case? And B, if so, why do you think that is? Well, it's a good question because it does raise, it raises a very wide open concept of what is a victory. We have not won any of our cases that that has to do with Lucian's law. Now, a lot of people like to criticize, oh, but what have they won? I like that. I like, I kind of like it when people ask that because the victory is broader. Yes. It's a cultural victory, right? So for example, one thing that we've won, so to speak, is we did have a federal judge say in a ruling in, in district court that Satanism has all of the merits, the satanic temple in particular has all of the merits of a, of a quote, real religion. This has this, this satisfies the legal requirements for a real religion. I think that's a huge victory. Yes. Secondarily, the media fiascos we create that we don't even intend to. <laughs> I mean, people lose their shit whenever we take a piss sometimes. And it's like people are starting to ask the questions over and over and over. Why are these guys so bad? What, what's so bad about these guys? They're out there picking up park, parks and, and cleaning up roadways and, and they've got community. You know, it's everything that a religion is. What's so bad about these guys? And then you, know, you get the, the satanic panic, blood libel, eating babies shit all the time and stuff that's obviously uh, projection, first of all, and, um, and bullshit, second of all. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, there's that aspect. Uh, but there's one thing that I like to point out recently. So, for example, here's a great example of Lucian's law in action and what is a victory. Well, we lost the case in Scottsdale. We uh, Matthew Keziah took over that case at the end, did the oral arguments in the Ninth Circuit pending ruling. We don't know what the outcome. But assuming we still lose, something that happened that blew my mind was in the in southern border town of Nogales, Arizona, right on the right on the border of Mexico. Uh, they opened up a public prayer program in the city council just like all these other cities in Arizona and the media without us having anything to do with this. We never talked to anybody. We never <laughs> asked to, to, to give a talk. The media asked the mayor, what are you going to do when the satanic temple comes? <laughs> he said, Hey, I opened the door. Everyone's welcome. Well, is that true or not? Hell if I know. However, the fact that the media asked the politician, what happens when we come is saying, First of all, that we're on the media's constant attention. Yeah. Secondly, that it's showing that it's effective because win or lose, we cost Scottsdale a lot of money and a lot of bad press to defend that case. And all we wanted to do was give was talk for two minutes. Hmm. But now the aftermath is when other when other cities make rules, they're being asked by the media, hey, you're making this rule. What are you going to do? I think that's a that's a bigger victory than any court case, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I definitely think that there is a that it's a an incredibly powerful cultural lever, right? And and so even like like the the that Lucian's law is an incredibly powerful form of like culture jamming, and it's a powerful cult, cultural lever that kind of exposes the dark underbelly of theocracy in America. 
Yeah, I, I could give a, I could give a second example too. You know, the Oklahoma situation. So Oklahoma was the first Ten Commandments situation that the Satanic Temple got involved in. That at that point, our monument was merely basically a cocktail napkin drawing, um, and eventually <laughs> that Ten Commandments came down. The Satanic Temple got a lot of credit for it. We didn't. We didn't win that case. We never filed that case. What happened was we exposed it. Yeah. And the media was so inter- it was interconnected with our monument and theirs that it raised the cultural connection of wait did these guys have a point that was the first time they were like wait these guys seem like they might have a good point the ten commandments come down ultimately not because of us but we were credited almost for that victory so to speak be- just because we were the ones that put that in the spotlight that might not have been as national news as it was without us so i think these questions even being asked are, are part of lucian's law in action hmm. so as i'm listening to you talk i the pattern that I see is that a, you know, the the far right and the Christian nationalists, they open the door under the name of inclusion, right? Under, under a broad name of something like religious liberty, which on its face sounds pluralistic and uh, diverse and metropolitan and so on and so forth, right? It, it sounds, it, it has on pure face value religious liberty, when they say it, it sounds great, right? But then it is ultimately a weapon that they use for Christian supremacy and they lose their goddamn minds when a minority religion steps through the door that they opened. So that's the pattern that I'm seeing. I'm wondering if that pattern rhymes with the same use of phrases on the right, like free speech. Absolutely. And, 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 and think, what's what's your take on that? So the, the two examples off the top of my head are, are people use terms for political gain. The National Socialist Party, the, the Nazi Party was was named that because socialism was all the rage at the time and people liked that word. The Democratic Republic of North Korea. Do you think they got any democracy there? You know, <laughs> or a republic? And, and when you're in the United States, we've got this big boner fetish for the word liberty. If you look at all of these right-wing foundations, it's always this, you know, foundation defending liberty and justice, freedom, eagle, jerkoff.com. You know, like it's, it's always <laughs> in these weird fucking liberty terms. And it's like, it, it's almost repugnant to me. Like it's gross that they use, yeah. they use the word liberty. But the way they see it, and I think this has become clear, I don't even think this is this is um, debatable at this point. They believe, truly, they, they're in their heart of hearts, they believe that their um, liberty is to suppress and oppress other people. That's the right. I can, and if you say, hey, you can't discriminate against this group, they're like, what about religious rights? Don't I have a religious right to discriminate against this group? That's a deeply held belief of mine. And it's not surprising. I mean, I personally think that Abrahamic religions were founded to, to suppress women in particular. But, mm-hmm. you know, this, this is part of it. They, they have, they've got to control their wives. They've got to spread the word. You combine those two things. It makes perfect sense that they believe they have the ultimate freedom to discriminate. I mean, wh- why would they not believe that? Right. I mean, I, I think it comes down to that. And then you add the word freedom and you put an eagle and American flag on it and everyone, you know, passes out from all their freedom boners. And, 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 all, and everyone just has, everyone has a, just a collective freedom orgasm. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. These colors are wrong. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's just, it's really fascinating because I feel like as I've watched the far right, especially, you know, they were obsessed with this when Trump was a president, but but especially uh, after uh, Biden won the election, they've really turned their sights onto 
cancel culture. Now, I think we can all agree that there are problems on online spaces, right? We can all agree that there are uh, pretty big issues with how we talk to each other online, definitely in leftist spaces. But the way that they have captured that conversation while they are the counselor, the, the cancelers supreme, <laughs> they fucking love canceling, right? It, it's so... It's so bizarre. And I know you and I have talked about this. We, we have our own um, very you know, critical opinions of the, the concept of cancel culture. But what you're saying yes, is, is absolutely. It, but what you're and, and there are it is problem. It is a problem how we communicate leftist circles when we, we divide ourselves into smaller and smaller factions that become completely useless. We could go on about this all day. Yeah. But but and I've stepped in it online over this. Um, <laughs> but that being said, what I realized and I think I was ignorant to at the time, admittedly, I didn't realize this was happening is the right kind of took this concept and molded it into an attack on their bad behavior. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm like, wait, that's not what I was criticizing. I was criticizing the whole re reductionism and absolutism of how we treat each other on the left, I think is, is gross. Not saying, hey, wait, you just got caught doing something shitty and now that's cancel culture. That's not what that meant. That's not what that meant. And and honestly, you know, I, because of this, I have decided to just shift my terminology away from using the, the term cancel culture to, use, you know, to, to use to use more precise language. Right. Because it's like, OK, the, the using the word cancel culture, it's it's too broad to be helpful and it's been so weaponized. And, and it's also a red alarm now for people on the left because they hear the word cancel culture and and they assume that I'm a right wing goon. And so I've scratched it from my lexicon. And instead, I try to use much more specific language, hopefully in a way that that is less prone to be weaponized. And all this and, and you know all this to say while there are problems within leftist spaces that I've talked a lot about, it isn't an existential threat compared anywhere near compared to the far right. Like Yeah, and that's that's a really good point. And so these these buzzwords and I and I find them across the political spectrum. Uh, I call it the Mad Libs. So it, it's it's like you, if you see any conservative politician talk about you know their their ex their version of the existential crisis of culture, you're going to find these terms like radical left, cancel culture. Yes. You know, just like on the left, you see all all these essentially Marxist platitudes that don't mean anything anymore um, <laughs> because you know, <laughs> it's 19th century Germany. Right. Um, you know, it's like how much you're going to talk about the historical dialectic. OK, but when you're saying things like, you know, kill all the landlords, it's like, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to work in the 21st century. But anyway, it's you know, you, you 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 start plugging in these these mad libs like cancel culture and radical left and freedom, liberty, all of these words I mean jack shit anymore. But they did really commandeer the phrase and they're acting like like you said, they're, you're acting. They're acting like this is this is a real threat to them, which it's not. I mean, it, it, canceling a right winger requires them committing usually a pretty heinous crime and then they cancel themselves. Exactly. So like, exactly. Well, has nothing to do with this. Exactly. And and take the case of someone like Milo Ian. He was canceled by the right. He was taken down by the far right. The left had nothing to do with that. The left. Also, while you're on Milo. Yeah. The left likes to to brag about uh, sometimes deplatforming people. I'm a big I'm, a, I'm very anti deplatforming. And, and I like to use Milo as the example for exactly what you just said. 
he took himself out with a fucking tweet. Hmm. Like the fact that he had a Twitter following is why he got canceled. He did it to himself. The left didn't cancel. They made him more popular by trying to deplatform him is the way I see it. My understanding is that Milo was canceled by the far right. A, he was taken off of Twitter because he broke the Twitter terms of services by harassing a black actress who was in um, Ghostbusters, right? And and unleashed his horde of, of racist monsters on her. And it was it was truly abusive. I, I watched the tweets happen. I, I watched that thing happen. And it was truly unacceptable and horrific. I didn't even know about that. I thought he got I thought he got his ass canceled by his, his weird pseudo pedophilia. Yeah, so so that was the other thing. That was the so he got uh, he got kicked off of Twitter for the harassment that he incited, but then he was taken down for like seeming to condone pedophilia. <laughs> <laughs> and and but it was the right that did that. It was the right that shut him down. And, yeah, well, it, it, yeah. There, there becomes a point where they're so gross that even the right's like, shit. Now we can't endorse this guy anymore. Yeah. Um, but I think that goes all around. Um, you know, and yeah, I, you're right. I really see Milo as a failure of the left, and the reason is because he was taken down by his own side. The reason is because he was he was he was not taken down because the left was able to destroy him. He was not taken in 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 the in the world of in in the in in the discourse. We weren't able to actually take him down using argumentation, using better speech. We we weren't able to take him down in that way. He was taken down by the right. So I ultimately see the fall of Milo as a failure of the left. I do too. And and you know this whole kicking and screaming and. It's actually your term that I've been using, the contagion, the contagion left, where mm. people, people seem to be so afraid that if, if we hear the wrong ideas, we're going to be sucked into some QAnon, which, I mean, there, there is some justification to worry about that since we've all known someone that got sucked Who into got sucked shit. in, yeah, for sure. But the thing is, you got to that doesn't mean you, you can start curtailing what people are allowed to see and hear, because who would you give that power to? What one, what one person or committee or, or agency would you say, yeah, I'm going to give you the authority to tell me what I can hear and read? If you turn it on yourself, it's like, whoa, wait a minute. But, you know, when it's other people, we're, we're easy to be like, you know, this person shouldn't get a hold of this stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's easy for me to say, but what are they going to say about what I'm allowed to hear and, and, and see? And it's you, you got to put yourself in the shoes and be like, I don't want what I hear to be censored. Why would I want that for other people? And if it goes awry, the best thing you can do is keep speech free and keep keep injecting it with better ideas, with with more wisdom, not mm. less. Have you seen the new QAnon into the or or the Q into the Storm series on HBO? I have not, but I've been told it is, it is a must see. <laughs> it is it is stunning. It is one of the most incredible documentaries I've watched, maybe ever. Like it is so fucking good, but. But listening to the director, he not necessarily on the show, but like in interviews and whatnot, he he says that the extreme speech that we see on the Internet has to do with the loss of privacy and the selling of that data for what he calls sociopathic algorithms that that manipulate and categorize and isolate for the sole purpose of profit. And that that is one reason why we have seen this explosion, this rise of dysfunction 
on the left and all-out hatred on the right is is because of be because it's systemic it is it is algorithmic and and so when i look at that i i really wonder if if our kind of old school liberal intuitions about free speech are coherent on a place in a place like Facebook, right? Because there's this shadow mechanism organized across gigantic data centers, hidden in giant data centers around the world. That's not my line, that's Jaron Lanier's line, that are collating and collecting data on us and isolating us and and deliberately, if I can use this word, triggering us and escalating that for the sole purpose of profit. And so I sometimes wonder if we are operating from a that our old school liberal sensibilities of free speech, uh, which are foundational and important, are completely thwarted by this new system that we're all communicating in. And that's a, and that's a really good point. And I think that is something to be um, cognizant of going going forward for all of us, really. You know, and the, the algorithms are obviously sociopathic. There's no morality tied into it. Yeah. Uh, and it is a, it's an absolute fact that you get more clicks on bad news than good news. Hmm. That's, I mean, by an exponential factor. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a huge incentive to um, catastrophize news. Yes. Um, financial dollar amount incentive for it. Now, add the fact that we just spent the last year mostly isolated from each other. Yep. Talk about it. Your pool where, where people become abstractions shrank. Now it's outside your front door. People are abstractions, right? So, you know, I can sit here and, you know, a caveat to what I was just saying earlier about censorship. We already know, and I, I'm well aware that what I'm being fed on a daily basis and what we're all being fed on a daily basis from the news sources we see are heavily curated for clicks. Yeah. I mean, we live in a clickbait world, and th- th- this is this is kind of, you know, it's kind of fraying the concept of a liberal democracy because no one's informed. Everyone's misinformed yeah. about everything. How do you have a functional democracy when everyone's misinformed intentionally for money legally? Yeah. Where do you go from there? And, and you know, these are huge questions that I certainly don't have the answer yeah, to. Yeah, same. Um, but and- it is definitely challenging my, my own notions of, of freedom of speech because, you know, the QAnon stuff made it dangerous for us. We, we uh, vary out in public uh, Satanists when they believe that there are cabals of, of us molesting children and stuff, even though they're going to the church where that's probably actually happening, you know, this, but this projection is real. Yes. I mean, they really believe that. And that puts us in a dangerous situation. So on one hand, I'm sitting here going, you know, let everyone say whatever they want. On the other hand, I'm going, yeah, well, the misinformation can be deadly. And I do realize that. And I think the phenomenon has gotten much worse in the last few years than it ever has been to a point where it's unprecedented. I don't, I don't know how to, where, where do we, how do we go backwards now? Yeah. This? This is, the other thing is disinformation is cumulative. You know, if you go, if you Google disinformation from 10 years ago, you'll find it and it just keeps building. So mm. there's a more more of a pool of it over time. And, and that, that part actually freaks me out a little bit. Yeah. Same. And you know what, Colin Hoback, the director of Q into the storm says is in, in response to things like hate speech and misinformation online, what we, our, our response has generally been, okay, let's give the tech platforms more algorithmic power, right? But algorithms were the problem that got us here in the first place. Right. Yes. And, and, and so silencing people, silencing people isn't on, on these platforms 
isn't what's going to fix the problem. A complete restructuring of the digital system is what will fix the problem. It needs to be a top-down reform of places like Facebook and Twitter and Google, which curates the entire world's information. And that is such a gigantic task that I just don't even know how to begin <laughs> to think about that that challenge, right? Also, especially the United States isn't notorious for uh, fixing problems. We, we, For some reason, when we detect a problem that's universal, we dig in harder. I, I, it's something that I've never understood it's quite a phenomenon. Hmm. Um, you know, it's like the war on drugs. It doesn't work. Well, let's double down on it. You know, stuff like that. It's where I feel like the social media problem, it's the same thing you were just saying where the algorithm, even the more alg uh, algorithm freedom, essentially. And I think the idea was if it's, if you take morality and politics out of an algorithm, what could go wrong? And the problem is it turns everyone sociopathic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so let's pivot back to, um, the Satanic Temple. So after after your description of Lucian's law and the legal battles that TST is engaged in, I think a lot of, especially outsiders or newcomers to the temple, might be under the impression that TST is purely a legal and activist organization, right? And, and I run into this assumption all the time, that TST are humanists pretending to be Satanists. And because Satanism is a powerful lever in the culture wars and and so that it, it so that it is it, the assumption is that it is kind of on a fundamental basis, really ironic. Um, it, it's, it's kind of a say it, it's an irony to capture the public imagination and the legal system and and because it's a powerful lever. I think that's often the assumption of people going in. What's your what's your response to that? Yeah, and I think it's it's a very main duty of mine to kind of debunk that as the one who's a pivotal, you know, member of the legal team. I started the legal team. I, I did a lot of the public statements on our legal cases. But I like to emphasize very heavily: this is one of the many things that we do. Yes. This is this is the part that's going to make the news. This is the part that everyone's going to be talking about, and they make documentaries out of. But that's why I'd like to dial it back a little bit internally within the Satanic Temple to work more on, on, on the um, culture, cultural and religious aspect, which we have done yeah. uh, immensely. The ordination program, um, book, you know, book recommendations and book clubs and ritual practice books on the ritual specific to TST made by uh, Shiva Honey, the Devil's Tome. All of these things over time create a more kind of robust uh, religious uh, culture, so to speak. And I think it's one that's been missing for a lot of people because the institution that does exist for Satanism, the Church of Satan, is, is shadowy and, and secretive and it's individualistic and you don't really get that community as much. Um, they might say otherwise, I've got no beef with the Church of Satan. I don't agree with them on a lot of things, but I got no beef with them. Mm -hmm. But I think it's fair to say that not everyone in our camp likes uh, some of their teachings and vice versa. And that's fine. Yep. That's fine. But um, this, this, I like to say I'm not an activist and this is not an activist group. Activism occurs because we end up having to fight for our rights. And absolutely, that was a component when this first started. However, this is a real religion. This is mainly a religion. And what I do in the legal aspect is because I have to. Mm. If, if nobody does it, then we're, our rights are going to get trampled on and, and we can't have that. So 
yeah, it's it's important. The legal work is some of the most important things we do, but it's for a greater purpose. We're not suing for the sake of suing. This is we see a very corrupt system. This is our way to fight it from within the system. But from outside of that, we also have free exercise. So that's the establishment component. But the free exercise is when we're not in the public square, we still do the things that we do, our ritual practices, our personal philosophies regarding Satanism, whether you're from the romantic milieu, uh, romantic Satanism, or the occult, mm-hmm. or the anarchist, you know, uh, the, uh, some, some people come from the uh, anarchist vision of it, like the Bolsheviks and the Bolshevik revolution, the anarchists like Bakunin and stuff use Satan as a, a social kind of counter uh, reactionary metaphor or what have you. And I think these things are all intrinsically tied together yeah. uh, to create a whole. So it's, it's just one part of the whole. Um, and, and I would definitely say if you're not a self-identifying Satanist, or if you don't even know what that means, not go away, just wait, wait, research, Figure out what we do. You're going to find things you love and things you don't love about what we do. And you figure out if this is your place. And then absolutely everyone should join. But the, the lawsuits and the activism is only one small component. Yeah, it's really just the tip of the iceberg. And the vast majority of the activity within the Satanic Temple is within our own communities. I mean, we have private rituals. We have com- thriving communities. We have support groups. We have all kinds of stuff that the public would just never, ever see from the outside. And, mm-hmm. you know, what it, what it really reminds me of is the Quakers. You know, the Quakers have been on the front lines of political activism for decades. Well, it would be absurd to look at the Quakers and say, oh, they aren't really religious. <laughs> because they are politically involved, they aren't really religious. And it's like, no, that's, that's absurd. The Quakers are politically engaged because of their religious convictions. And I think it's the same, yeah, and I think it's the same with TST. We are politically engaged because we are religious Satanists. It flows from our religious convictions, from our deeply held religious beliefs. In, uh, the, the way that I would symbolize this, and, and this, is, this is something I want to emphasize, is our particular Baphomet monument encompasses Lucian's Law. And the reason why is because of its, the, the breasts being absent. Right. Hmm. You know, the people always say, where are the titties? Oh, it's not authentic. Blah, blah, blah. As if we forgot. Oh, you know, I got to call up the sculptor. He forgot the tits. You know, obviously, <laughs> that was- um, you know, and, and the whole thing is we know that we're going to try to put this in the public square to to, you know, fight for pluralism. And we don't want to get embroiled in an obscenity battle because, hmm. you know, this is a country that just several years ago had an attorney general, Ashcroft, who was covering up Lady Justice in the Capitol because she had an, the statue had an exposed breast. These are the people that wow. we're tangling. These are the people that we're tangling with. So I think that dichotomy, uh, the reconciliation of opposites, as the Baphomet represents, the sabbatic goat, add to that, we're fighting in the public square. So it's gotta have a certain decorum so we can even broach the subject. Yeah. I think that our monument, the way that it is designed, is perfectly encompassing both. The reconciliation of opposites of what the Baphomet represents, not only that, but also the private and public realm that the Satanic Temple uh, engages with. Mm, awesome. I think that's a great note to end on. For for people who are curious about what you do or want to follow you online, where can they do that? You know, I, my Facebook is pretty open. I, I got off Twitter. I got on and off real quick because there's a lot of drama on there and I don't have time for it. And uh, yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking about going back, but I, I'm just on Facebook under my real name, 
and I post mostly silly and facetious things. Uh, I offend people from time to time because I look very flippant, but I swear to you that this is dead serious business. <laughs> awesome. And you also have a show on the satanictemple.tv. Yes, and I'm hoping that we start back up. We, uh, I am on the Devil's Dispatch with Jack Maturko, uh, who else writes for Pathios. And he he and I do the Devil's Dispatch. I don't know what it's going to look like this season. We ended back on Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking to start back up, but it might, it might be two separate shows. We might have a little different format. But what I like to do is get people on that are making waves and uh, doing important things for Satanism, uh, especially the Satanic Temple. So I'm hoping that season comes back up shortly. Um, I'm also doing a ritual uh, series kind of thing for TST TV, where we do um, we demonstrate rituals from the Devil's Tome that Shiva Honey wrote. Amazing, awesome! And by the way, this show is sponsored by the Satanic Temple TV, and so people who are curious and checking out all the shows there, they can uh, use my promo code, which is Sacred Tension, all caps, no space, and they get one month free. All right. Well, I think that's it for this show. The music is by The Jelly Rocks and 117. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, edited, and produced by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and Dante Salamoni. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>